Well, we're going to continue with Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. And uh, we'll start with a, with a word of prayer as usual. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we do really ask that you will show us the way as we seek to understand your word, <clears throat> as we seek to understand the things of your Son. And we pray, Father, that you will open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things out of your word, and that in our understanding, we might not simply be stimulated uh, intellectually, mentally, but that we might be inspired, that we might rise up to the spirit of these things that we see here in your word and in the things of your Son. We pray, Heavenly Father, then, for your strength, that your strength and, and your spirit and your power might work in us to transform us and to make us part of the, that new creation, which is after the image of the Lord Jesus, whom we are here to study. Father, please bless us in our endeavours, for his sake. Amen. So, Matthew 3, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what do we mean by the kingdom of heaven? Of course, it's parallel with the kingdom of God. And Matthew's gospel is the transcript of his preaching to Jewish people in the first century. And so it seems to me that he's sort of using Jewish uh, terminology and ideas here because the Jews didn't like using or pronouncing the, the word God, and so heaven was very often put for, for God. And so the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, or heaven, uh, is another way in Matthew's culture of talking about God. And straight away, I think you see a lesson there when you appreciate that actually the gospel, uh, the gospel records that we have are transcripts of the actual preaching of the gospel, starting as we pointed out when we looked at Matthew 1, uh, the, the fact that the Lord Jesus is the, the seed or the descendant of Abraham and David, uh, chasing through his teaching about the kingdom, coming to his death and resurrection, and then concluding, as, as we probably would also, also, with an appeal for baptism uh, right at the end of the gospel. And so Matthew was teaching people in terms, in language which they understood. And that, of course, is, a, I think, a pattern for us. To not simply boldly state the, the truth, as it were, but to seek to engage with people on their terms and in their frames of understanding and certainly in, in their language. And so he says you should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is coming near. Now, what does he mean by, by this? Well, the kingdom of God or of any king is the dominion over which the king reigns. And how, actually, does a king reign? A king reigns in the sense that his subjects follow his principles, his teachings, uh, his commandments, uh, his constitution, etc. And so then the kingdom of God is a group of people over whom the king has dominion in the sense that they willingly, in this case, willingly accept his principles, his constitution, and so forth. So then, the kingdom, in one sense, is the rulership of God in human life. And of course, the Lord Jesus gives us, uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the Gospels, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, in the parables of the kingdom, etc., he gives us 
the principles by which that kingdom will be judged uh, and will be constituted, etc. And so in that sense, in a very limited sense, we can be God's kingdom right now in this life. Now, of course, physically and literally, politically, geographically, uh, when the Lord Jesus returns and raises the dead, that is the time when his kingdom shall be literally physically established on the earth. But what that means is that this world will then, at that time, be governed according to his principles, the principles that you see in the Sermon on the Mount, the principles that you see in the parables about the kingdom. So then, when he says that the kingdom is at hand, in one sense you could understand that as him, him meaning that actually there is coming the time when uh, the principles of that kingdom shall be explained, and Jesus, as the king of that kingdom, could be called, legitimately, the kingdom, because he was the absolute uh, quintessence, if you like. He was the summation of all that that kingdom stood for. And that's why in Luke 17, when he, he talks about the kingdom of God is among you, he doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is within the hearts of those uh, Pharisees who ask the question. The kingdom of God was among them in the sense that um, he, as, as the king of the kingdom, was there. And so the kingdom of God, if you want to know what it will be like, well, it will be like Jesus. Because he is the essence of that kingdom. And so... <clears throat> There is also, I think, a sense that John, John had that the kingdom of God is, uh, in that sense, going to uh, come here on the earth. Uh, sorry, that, that the kingdom of, of God was, uh, was coming uh, in the sense of Jesus, that Jesus is at hand, Jesus is coming. And so... He says, repent, because that kingdom is near. And so, he says, repent, because that kingdom is near. I think he may also have the sense that if you, that is, Israel, repent, then the kingdom of God in its full sense could have then come. Why I say that is because uh, we're looking at Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Um, why I say that is because he says, repent, Matthew 3 verse 2, repent for the kingdom is at hand, because this is what was spoken of by Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So then, I think the, the whole point of the... Uh, uh, Isaiah passage there that he's quoting is that if Israel were to repent then the way of God's kingdom would come and that Messiah would come in glory now I think that what he means by that then is that the way as in the path was to be prepared and then God's kingdom, God, God's Messiah, would come over that path, over that road, if you like, in glory. So then, 
verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is an allusion uh, to the uh, idea of preparing a way for people, for a great king or somebody to come. And they went out and pulled all the stones out of the, the highway and made it straight uh, and, and made it level, etc., uh, so that the, the, the great king could come and walk over this, uh, this prepared road. So then, it, it seems to me that John's mission was to prepare this way so that the king of glory could come to Zion. That's very much the, uh, the impression that you get uh, from, uh, from Isaiah. So in that sense, it was possible that the kingdom of God could have come there and then that if Israel had accepted Jesus, if they had, if the, the work of John the Baptist had been successful, then the kingdom of God would have been established there and then. And Messiah would have come over those prepared roads or that prepared path, that prepared way to, to Zion. But it didn't happen like that. And so God had, of course, another plan. The whole uh, series of prophecies you have there in Isaiah is is delayed in its fulfillment until the last days when there will be an Elijah prophet who again will be similar to John the Baptist who will prepare the way uh, for Jesus to come and he will actually come this time because Israel finally will repent. Now we can pause there and take a, a lesson that God may set up various potentials. He may have a, an ideal that he wants us to follow. But if we don't rise up to that, then he may have a plan C, a plan B, a plan C, a plan D for us to follow. Now, it's not as if if we fail, if he sets us up in a certain way and we don't go that way, that he says goodbye and see you later, you didn't follow in my way. He's, he's so thirsts for relationship with people that he really will try to continue working with people. It's rather like if somebody marries someone who's an unbeliever. That, that is not countenanced in, in the Bible as far as I understand it. But it doesn't mean that God says, well, goodbye. He will continue working in their, that person's life. But it will not be plan A. It will be plan B, plan C, plan D. They might divorce and remarry someone else. And maybe that wasn't also the ideal plan. And that goes wrong. And they divorce and remarry again and so on and so forth. And yet God is still working with people. Of course, there comes a point where there is a cutoff. I don't deny that. What I'm saying is that God's program, God's project with, with humanity has had so many setbacks. It was his ideal, uh, of course, that Israel should accept Jesus. That John the Baptist was to make that path straight uh, so that the King of Glory could ride over that prepared path. And who was the path? The path was uh, people who had been prepared. And in Isaiah 40, which is fulfilled in the work of John the Baptist, according to Matthew and Luke, uh, John's message was, lift up the, the parts of the road that are down, the valleys, lift them up, and bring down the, the high parts so that it's a level plain. And I think the, the valleys are the people maybe with uh, too low a self-perception the people in depression and, and so forth, and the, the higher lifted up parts of the, 
the plain are those that are proud and arrogant, etc. So there is a humbling of the proud and a lifting up of those in, in depression that are suffering from, from lack of self-worth, etc. To make, ideally, this even path, this even uh, plane over which the King of Glory would come to, to Zion. So then, the appeal is very much to repent. And the, the repentance that he's asking for, that John was asking for, was in order to prepare this way for the King of Glory to come to Jerusalem. Now, ultimately, it didn't work. And so, it's going to have to uh, be fulfilled in the last day. You remember how Jesus said about John the Baptist that this was uh, Elijah. He, uh, Elijah is to come before the coming of Christ to prepare the way. And in the same way as uh, it seems that Elijah worked for three and a half years in the period in which there was drought in Israel, so John the Baptist, it seems, his ministry was likewise for three and a half years. And so I suggest that in the last days, the Elijah prophet will likewise work for three and a half years. In that final uh, tribulation period before the appearance of Jesus. But the difference is that that will be successful and that Israel will repent and Christ will therefore come. So I would suggest that our number one uh, evangelical outreach should be to Jewish people. Uh, seeking to get Jewish people to repent and to accept Jesus. Because in the first instance this call for repentance is the call to Israel to repent so that Messiah might come. So there's a very clear connection here between repentance and the coming of the kingdom of heaven, who I suggest ultimately is a title for, for the Lord Jesus personally. So then we read in verse 4 that John had his clothing of camel's hair and a leather, uh, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Well, the, uh, the wild honey was not necessarily from bees, but probably gum from a tamarisk tree or something like that. Um, the point is that he consciously tried to make himself look like Elijah. And it's been pointed out that camel's hair was actually quite a, uh, a, quite, quite a higher class kind of clothing. He didn't have a, a, a camel's hair coat uh, just because he didn't have anything else to wear. But I suggest that he's actually trying to consciously copy Elijah. And so when we read about these people in the Bible that, oh yeah, John the Baptist, well yes, he was the Elijah prophet. Well, he didn't have to be. On a personal level, he could have chosen not to be, but he tried to be. And he rose up consciously, I, I suggest, to be like that. So then he he felt that he must be as Elijah. And it's the same with us, really. As you read the Bible, you encounter these characters. Uh, and in one sense, the Bible is just a load of history. And why is it history? It's biography. It's the story of people, of David, Aaron, Moses, and so forth. Um, why is that? Well, we all like reading biography. We all like uh, hearing someone else's life story. It's kind of interesting. And why is it interesting? 
because you see in that other guy's story something of yourself. In some small way or bigger way, general pattern or some very small scale similarity and, and so on. And that is why we have all these Bible characters brought before us in the Bible <clears throat> so that we might think ourselves into their shoes, as it were, that we might see that my life situation is not actually unique. We all tend to feel that I am totally alone in this world, that uh, absolutely nobody has been through anything exactly like I have been through, and uh, that may be in a sense the case, but in, in essence it's not the case. And the more you search the scriptures, the more you see that out of those couple of hundred characters that you encounter there, that actually there's someone for you, and probably more than one. So his work, John's work, was to make the paths of Jesus straight. And I've suggested that those paths were effectively people, the people that he was teaching. And of course he went out and preached in the wilderness as we read in verse 1. Why does he do that? Because in Isaiah it says that the way will be prepared in the wilderness. So I, I'm not sure that God just told him, hey, go into the desert and preach. He had looked at those Isaiah passages and thought, aha, uh -huh, I see. Uh, the way will be prepared in the wilderness. Well, I better go and preach in the wilderness. Which, of course, humanly speaking, was not the smartest thing to do. If you want to reach a population, when you go to the capital city, you go to where the people are, you don't go out into the desert, into a place where nobody is. But that's what he did. <clears throat> and make his path straight. In Acts 13, verse 10, we read of uh, a man being accused by Paul of perverting the right or the straight ways of the Lord. The same word, right or straight. And you read about how Paul in Acts 18 instructed men in the way of the Lord. And this is the same idea, that the paths that are to be made straight is the way or the path of the Lord in human life. And we then are doing our part in preparing the way for the coming of Jesus by uh, straightening people out, as it were, uh, by lifting up those that are in the valley of depression, by bringing down the, the proud, preparing the way for the coming of Christ. You remember how he says that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world and then shall the end come. So there is a definite connection between our witness in this last generation and the gospel going into all the world. Uh, sorry, and the, and the coming of Christ. That when we have taken the message into all the world and when there is response, then Christ will come. And I've said that that's specifically talking about Israel, but it seems to me also true on a global level. So then there is a definite huge role that you are playing in every witness that you make. That you are, and I, that we are playing a part in this mega, uh, colossal uh, scheme of things whereby we, as the last generation, are preparing for the coming of Jesus, and the more effective and powerful our witnesses, the quicker he will come. Now, it's all bit by bit. I mean, I'm giving this talk here in Riga, Latvia, and only uh, 25 years ago, uh, this was under communist power, etc., and there were very few, if any, 
uh, true believers. And God is at work insofar as uh, we want to take that message further. The whole of the former Soviet Union opened up so that we could take the gospel to it. China has opened up. And in those last 25 years, you've seen the growth of the Internet, which was an absolutely a paradigm shift for all of us that no one could ever have imagined something like the Internet. And also the growth of English as a popular language, as effectively the world language, whereby now, through the Internet, the gospel can go into almost every country on earth, to every nation and tribe, etc., and also another phenomena is of migration. That you stand on the streets of any big city in Europe or America or Australia and you just look at who's walking past you. These are not Anglo-Saxon people. These are people from every single, every single tribe and family of the whole planet. And if you stand there handing out tracts, you're actually taking the gospel to the whole world. Just standing there on a corner uh, by a metro station in, in some big city in Europe or, or whatever. Now, this is all intended by God, so that this gospel goes to the whole world. And really, in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen this being set up, and we have to run with that as far as we can. So, verse 5, Then went out to him, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about, uh, about the Jordan, now, just notice there from verse 5 that uh, the Bible sometimes uses this phrase all in a very limited sense. It doesn't mean every single person who lived in Jerusalem, in Judea, and around the Jordan. It means a lot of people from there went out to him. Now, it's interesting that he was teaching a very tough message, was he not? He was appealing for repentance he was telling people in no uncertain terms that you, you're a serious sinner, etc. And people went out into the desert. They took a journey. And if he was baptizing in the Jordan, I mean, this is really quite a long way. This is not just a couple of hours walk or sitting on a donkey for an hour or so. This is a major, a major journey. And you see that people actually liked the, the hard-hitting approach. And so don't think that, well, we better not, we better not raise uh, controversial issues and call out for repentance too strongly because people think we're weird and people won't respond. Actually, not so. John's example is pretty clear, that he was very hard-hitting in his appeal for repentance. And in everybody, even in the most hardened sinner, there is somewhere within their, their conscience a sense that, yes, I do need to repent. They need to hear that. And we have plenty of opportunity in the world in which we live where sins like homosexuality, etc., are just uh, passed off as normal or genetic and all, all this kind of garbage that, that one hears, that that's how people are born and, and so on and so forth. No, actually the hard-hitting appeal does, and take it from me, it does bring forth response. It does. It does not it, it turn people off. It may turn some people off who don't want to repent, but others will come to you because of that. And you see it in John. He was there preaching a hard message. You must change. You've got to repent. You are in the wrong. And people flooded out to see him all the way from Jerusalem, all Judea, to him in the desert, 
standing in the desert by the Jordan River. And as I say, this, this was not just one or two hours walk. This was a journey of at least one or two days and back again. Where do you sleep? Where do you get the money from for the journey? All these kind of things. And it says all Jerusalem and Judea did this. So there's a lot of people. And you notice, incidentally, verse 7, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism. Who was a Pharisee living in Jerusalem at this time? Well, it was a young man called Saul, who later became Paul. And he was a Pharisee living in Jerusalem at this time. And it says that many of them, and all Jerusalem, went out to hear John. And I would suggest that Saul, who later became Paul, was one of them. Why I suggest that is because, not only because it's statistically likely from what we read here, that many of the Pharisees came and all Jerusalem came out to hear John, but also looking through Paul's letters, you can discern many allusions back to the words of John the Baptist. He quite often uses phrases which are only elsewhere used by John the Baptist. So then I submit that Saul, Paul, was actually a convert of John the Baptist's. Although at the time, he did not respond. You remember when, many years, or quite a few years after that, uh, the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the way to Damascus and said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And what he meant was, look, don't you see that your conscience is niggling you about me? Now, from where then did Saul get a conscience about Jesus? Well, I believe it was from the teaching of John the Baptist. So straight away then, you, you get a, a great encouragement that you may preach the gospel and apparently there is no response, or there is not the response that you expect. But somebody will have taken what you are saying, or the book you distributed, the Bible you gave them, the tract you gave them, and years later, in John's case, after he was dead, years later, maybe after your death, there will be response. And it will be fruit, that is, to, to your account in the Day of Judgment. And what a joy it will be when John the Baptist is resurrected in the kingdom and he sees this, one of the greatest people in the kingdom is a fellow called uh, Paul, who used to be called Saul. And he, I don't know how it will work out in the kingdom, but you can imagine, maybe he will think, I sort of remember that face from somewhere. And yes, I was one of those Pharisees who stood there listening to you, John, when you were teaching by the River Jordan. And so it is with, with us, I, I, I do believe. So they were baptized of him. A lot of people were baptized, verse 6, in Jordan, confessing their sins. The implication, I think, is that when they went into the water, they were confessing their sins. And the Greek word translated uh, to confess actually means to agree with. So I think they were agreeing with the message that you are sinful. And this, of course, is the motivation for baptism, not to join a club, not to do it because everybody else is doing it, but because you agree that, yes, I am convicted of sin, and that is why I want to be baptized. And so, he says in verse 7, O generation of vipers, he says to the Pharisees, 
you seed of the serpent, his allusion is back to Genesis 3 verse 15, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You could read that two ways. You could read it as, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you terrible sinners. Huh, I'm not going to baptize you. Um, who's warned you lot, you bunch of sinners, to flee from the wrath to come? But I don't think that is the case, because the Greek word translated warned, who has warned you, uh, strictly means to exhibit, to exemplify, to be a pattern. Who has been a pattern to you to flee from the wrath to come? And I suggest then that we put the emphasis in that sentence on the word who. O generation of vipers, who, who has warned you, who has set a pattern to you to flee from the wrath to come? And who was warning them to, or setting a pattern to them to flee from the wrath to come? It was John the Baptist. So I think he's saying to them, I am your pattern. And I think that John, like Elijah, his hero before him, I think he, he had similarities with the Pharisees. I think he did have an over-legalistic attitude. I mean, he'd been out in the desert uh, for many years, and it seems that he'd had contact with this very extreme legalistic group of Jews called the Essenes, who lived out there in, in the desert. And I think he's saying to them, look guys, follow my example. Who has set a pattern to you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, it's me. Yeah, I used to be a legalist like you people. I used to be into the law, etc. Uh, but I've come to Jesus. So follow my example. Now, that really is how we preach. We preach by, unconsciously maybe, setting ourselves as a pattern, as Paul says that he was a pattern to all those who hereafter should believe. But simply telling people certain truths will not change them. But what does change them is opening yourself up and setting yourself as their pattern. Of course, in order to bring them to Jesus, because we preach not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord and Master. And so what I'm saying then is that although we're teaching him, uh, if you simply suggest to people certain basic truths about Jesus, uh, they're not looking for that. What grabs their interest is you and your example and your pattern of life. Now, when he says, who, who has warned you, has set an example to you to flee from the wrath to come, I said that Paul uh, was a convert of John the Baptist, and I said that very often in his writings you can see him using terms which are only used by John the Baptist. This idea of the wrath to come, I have got a list of about ten verses in Romans where he uses this, and 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 16, talking about how the wrath is to come upon the Orthodox Jews. So this is an example of what I mean that Paul is full of allusion to the words of John the Baptist. Those words that John spoke, and he probably only stood and listened to John for maybe a couple of hours before he had to go back to Jerusalem, this was in order to, uh, sorry, that, that very brief encounter that he had stayed with him all his life. And it was 
that encounter, I believe, which was the, the prick in his side, the goad in his side, which kept troubling him in his conscience about Jesus. So then even a couple of hours with a person, they may remember that. They may remember that uh, for years to come. And that may be a, a prick in their conscience Now uh, about Jesus. Now, if you look back at your own life, you, you actually can't remember most of it. You, you can't remember most of the conversations that you've had, but you can remember a few. You can remember an encounter with one particularly interesting person or, or whatever. Uh, and so it was, I think, with Paul in what I suggest was no more than a couple of hours encounter with John the Baptist, that he remembered his phrases, he, he remembered him, he remembered the message about Jesus and the conviction of his own sin. And that can be the same for you and me, that actually our encounter with others can remain with them. I mean, let's face it, most people's encounters with people are conversations about the weather, about the, about the government, about the state of the nation and all this kind of stuff, and you, you just forget it, um, and it all passes. Uh, but occasionally there is something that is raised in real spiritual conversation that abides in someone. And this just shows the, the purpose there is, the meaningfulness there is to our lives as, as believers and in our interaction with other people. Now, he, he goes on to... Um, to warn them that they should not say within themselves, verse 9, we've got Abraham to our father, we're basically okay. And time and again, the Bible's focus is upon the inner thoughts of people. And he's one step ahead of them. He's saying, I know what you'll be thinking. And so many times in the Gospels you read that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And you could argue that, well, God gave him the Holy Spirit so he knew what they were thinking. But you could also argue that his sensitivity to people was such that he, he could see what they were thinking. And here you see with John the Baptist, who was not the son of God, he, he was uh, just, uh, just John, uh, how he could guess what they were going to think in their hearts. And actually you see that in Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians about resurrection, he says, Now some man will say, with what body are the dead raised up? So again, Paul was the same. He could guess what his audience were going to think. And I think that a, a mark of Christian maturity is sensitivity to the other guy, and, and particularly to our audience when it comes to preaching, to imagine, yeah, that's what they're going to think. And when you, when you take the initiative and say, yeah, I know you're going to be thinking this, wow, then you've really touched You've really touched something with people. You've really uh, started to build a bridge in that relationship between you and them. That, uh-huh, yeah, that was just what I was going to say. Huh. And then you really get their attention. And after time with people, we only pay, you know, 50% attention to what the other, the other bloke's saying. Um, and the art of conversation, real conversation, real dialogue, real engagement has been absolutely lost in all cultures, it seems to me, not just in the West, but worldwide. There's just no meaning any longer to words and, and uh, conversation. But if you can be like John, 
or Jesus or Paul and say, uh huh, yeah, this is what I'm saying. And now you're probably going to be thinking this. Wow, yeah, I am actually. Wow, then you've got their attention. Then you've got the bridge right into their attention. Well, he says that they are to bring forth fruit appropriate to their, to their rep repentance. But actually, the bringing forth of fruit is an ongoing thing. Because, yeah, Matthew 21, verse 43, the Gentiles are the nation that bring forth the fruits in their season. The, the fruits of the kingdom. So then, the... The, the, the motivation for our bringing forth a spiritual fruit is repentance. And repentance in that sense is ongoing because it is the ongoing basis for bringing forth fruit. Now, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. That is, from what I understand, what the Greek means. I'm baptizing you unto repentance. Not the other way round. If you repent, then you can get baptized. So often that is said, oh, you're not ready for baptism, you've got to repent of this, that and the other. Well, that gives the impression that, okay, if I repent of this sin that's bugging you or whatever... Uh, and it's usually something to do with, with relationships. You're living together and you're not married. Well, if you repent and get married, get your certificate, then you get baptized. The impression that that gives is, okay, I, I've been there, I've done that, but now I am repentant, now I'm good enough to be baptized. Uh, and the whole point of baptism is that this is for serious sinners. So in a sense, you know, you, you're no longer ready. I he says, I baptize you with water unto repentance. In other words, because we have been given God's grace, that, as Paul says, the grace of God leads you to repentance. So the fact that you accept it first means that you can't be passive to that, but that later on you live a life of repentance in practice. And he makes the contrast, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is coming and he will baptize you well, with, uh, with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And I suggest that in the context he's saying that my, the aim of my baptism is to bring you to repentance. But his baptism will give you the Holy Spirit, which will be the power to actually achieve repentance. Because so many times we sin and we ask God to forgive us and we feel that forgiveness, but there's something else that we want. And that something else that is slightly bugging us in our conscience is that sense that I probably will do this sin again. And the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit is, is the power from God, that psychological strength. I'm not talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit such as tongues and, and so forth. It, it is that internal power to change. It is that internal power to bring about repentance or change in practice. So he's saying, I'm baptizing you unto your repentance. But Jesus is going to baptize you with the power. After his baptism, then there is the, the power of the Holy Spirit to actually change in practice. 
And he says, but he that comes after me, Jesus, is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to carry. Now, to carry the shoes of somebody means to be their herald. John was the herald of Jesus. He was carrying the shoes of Jesus. But he says, I'm not worthy to do that. Now, that is the, the greatest uh, qualification, I would say, to be a preacher. Humility. And it's sadly that which you don't see very often, because so often the work of uh, missionary work, the work of evangelism, is associated with, with a huge amount of pride and arrogance uh, by the people up front doing the work. And this is totally inappropriate. He says... Yeah, I am carrying his shoes, because that's what it means. It means to be a, a herald, uh, to be the forerunner, but I'm not worthy. I'm not sufficient to do that, is the idea. And again, I think Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 6, where he says that God has made us, the AV says, able ministers of the gospel. And the, it's the same word here for worthy or sufficient, because... Uh, he says, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 3 verse 5, because our sufficiency, our worthiness, is of God. So, I think he's, he's really humble here. He feels totally insufficient. And that explains, I think, something that is a bit strange about John, uh, that he himself denies being the Elijah prophet. When they say to him, are you the Christ? He says, no. Are you that prophet? And they clearly have in view the, the Elijah prophet heralding Messiah. He says, no, I'm not. And yet Jesus says that John was the Elijah prophet. So why does he deny when he's actually asked? And I think, again, it's his insufficiency. It's his sense that I am, I'm, not, uh, I'm not worthy. And yet he was, in that sense, tremendously used by God. So if you have that sense that you also are not worthy, that yes, I'm carrying the shoes, but I'm not worthy, I'm not sufficient to do this, then this great paradox opens up that you will be given that sufficiency by God. Now, that, as I say, is to me the greatest characteristic of uh, any preacher. Finally, we, we come uh, to the end of the uh, of the chapter when Jesus is baptized. And of course you all want to you all want to ask the question and hear the answer. Well why was Jesus baptized? And what does it mean when we read um, in verse 15, thus it becomes us, John and Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Well I'll give you my uh, my stab at it. Um, thus it becomes us. There is John and Jesus in view here. Jesus doesn't say, thus it becomes me to fulfill all righteousness. Thus it becomes us. In other words, um, you, you, John, have got to play your part in this. And to fulfill is literally to perfect all righteousness. This, John, is how we are going to achieve complete righteousness. Perfection. Just imagine, there's all these half-naked people lined up there on the banks of the Jordan. Old grannies, pretty young women, mixed-up kids, wealthy people, Pharisees, some of the Pharisees were baptized, it says. 
Uh, very confused people, very simple people, very clever people, very fat people, very thin people. Um, every kind of person. And they're all there half naked, rather self-conscious, I guess, on the banks of the Jordan. And waiting in line with them is Jesus. And John like sees him uh, surrounded by all these sinful, mixed-up people, fat ones, thin ones, the rest of it, and he obviously thinks, oh, wait a minute, this is the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, go on, go on, go on. You, we need to do this to achieve perfection. And I think what John was worried about was, but Jesus, you're the Son of God. You should like stand in another part of the river. You shouldn't stand in this line. You, you should stand like on your own. I'll do a separate service for you. You're different. And Jesus is saying no. That the way to total perfection for him, for Jesus, was through this act of identity with, with normal, sinful human beings. The fat ones, thin ones, ugly ones, pretty ones, clever ones, simple ones, silly ones, smart ones, etc. It was this act of identity which was the, the, the stamp of his utter perfection. And he needed John to help him do that. Now, of course, this was a baptism for forgiveness, and Jesus didn't sin. They were all baptized, confessing their sins, but when it came to Jesus going under the water, there's this silence, because he didn't have any sin to confess. But he still wanted to identify with sins. So in those moments when we sin, and we, we feel that, therefore, there is a barrier between me and God now. Well, in a sense, that is true. In another sense, Jesus died and was in the way that he was, having our human nature as our representative, so that even in those moments, there is not ultimately that barrier. And this is why he died the death of a sinner on the cross, and even felt, my God, how have you forsaken me? When all the way through the Old Testament we're told that God will not forsake the righteous, and he will forsake the wicked. And yet Jesus felt that identified with sinners. Not that he was. This is the wonder of it all, that he was holy, harmless, and separate from sinners. And yet, he was totally identified with us through having our nature, through being our representative. And I think that this act of baptism was therefore highly significant, psychologically, spiritually, theologically, whatever term you want to use, because it was through that that him and John, or John helped him, to complete, to perfect all righteousness. Because actually righteousness is perfected not by separation from that long line of sinful humanity that it was waiting there on the banks of the Jordan for John to baptize them. No. Righteousness, complete, perfect righteousness was completed by identifying with them and not separating from them. Not having his own separate little private baptism service with John, but standing there in line with all of them. And that, I think, is the abiding uh, comfort for all of us. That, as Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of God? That nothing, and he lists all those terrible things, persecution, nakedness, etc., a distress, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think we all almost want to add to that list, nor human sin. 
if we're in Christ, then that is dealt with because he was our, is our uh, representative and in that sense, he is totally identified with us and in one sense that was the purpose not only of his baptism but of his entire death on the cross to achieve that complete uh, unity. Just one last point. Verse 16, the heavens were opened unto him. John 1 verse 51 uses very similar language. When Jesus says, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God descending. Just as it says here, the heavens were opened unto him. So what he, the point of what he says in John 1 51, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God descending is to say that, look, what I went through in that baptism is essentially what you are going to go through. And it just confirms what I'm saying, I think, that the act of his baptism was his act of identification with us. Now, we all feel in our weakness that I am alone, that uh, I am unique. And yes, as I said, that is the case. Maybe you are completely unique. Maybe, maybe nobody has had exactly the set of circumstances that you had. Maybe that is true, that there is no one here on earth who can empathize to the end, not just sympathize, but empathize to the end with your life situation. Maybe that, that, that is so. But, but there is one. And that one is Jesus in heaven. There is someone in the cosmos who completely knows how you feel. And in that sense, man is not alone. Because, to put it quite simply, we have Jesus.